going to turn the lights down and I'm gonna, we're going to start with a little video. I love visuals. Rebecca and I are very visual, so I brought a video for you. So let's go. Here we're going to start with this little funny woman lying in the grass, all right? Okay, hit it. Here we go. Where are we going to go? Oh, wow. Look how little we are. We're going to travel into the universe. We're going to actually pull back a billion light years. And we're going to get a glimpse, just a glimpse of how infinite and how big God is. Where did I go? Where did that little woman go? Where am I? God is so omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, and I'm so nothing. Look at the earth is nothing. Look how small. Where did I go? Where did my problems go? How could God hear my prayer? I'm so far away. I'm, known, I'm, I'm a speck of dust on a gnat's eyelash. How is it possible the Lord can see each tear that falls? How can he find me in this vast greatness? When you look at the scope of the universe like this, how do your prayers seem to you now? How can God possibly hear me? Ha, huh? I feel so insignificant. Look at this is just our, our little galaxy. There's the Milky Way. <laughs> Come on. Look, we're still going. But you're not insignificant. He hears you. He knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. He sees each tear that falls. And now we're going to go back. Because that's as far as a telescope can go. This is only a brief little glimpse of what God has created. Look how big he is. Do you really think you know better than God? Do you really think you can solve a problem? Now look where we're going to go. We're going to go into something else God has created. The human body. This is incredible look into the human body. It's like another universe. Look at this. I pray as you look at this that the Lord will get bigger and bigger and bigger today because this is going to allow you to get your eyes off the problem and onto the problem solver. Look at this, <laughs> what he created inside each one of us. He has gone before you years before you were ever you to know, before you ever had a problem. He goes before you and cares for you in ways that are impossible, impossible to comprehend. And that is just a small little taste of how big God is. I hope you look at your problems differently. And that's just a video. So I want to look at the sovereignty of God. First, at a, a couple of overall concepts, and then we're going to tackle the entire history of the world. Okay? Small little thing. Now, God is continuously at work in every aspect of every moment of our lives. Okay? That's our first little overall concept. Good or bad, God is continuously at work in every aspect of every moment of everyone's life, and he's working out millions and millions and millions of things to bring about one thing 
throughout the entire history of mankind. Every second of every day. He is ruler of all things. He is upholder of all things. He sustains all things. He goes before all things. He holds all things together. He transcends time. So he is at the beginning of time, at the end of time, all at the same time. He is in everything, gives life to everything. So, second overall concept. God does not look the other way when bad things happen. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing peace, and get this, creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isaiah 45, 7. So he doesn't look the other way when bad things happen. Also, God's sovereignty is mind-blowing. Perhaps maybe just remember the video you just saw. His ways are incomprehensible. His paths are beyond us. God sustains and governs every bit of the universe. He has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over his kingdom over the entire universe. God's sovereign power is working in the experience of man. God intervenes in the heart of men, in their desires, in their wills. So now get this, ladies. People actually make decisions and carry out actions that accomplish God's purposes and doesn't interfere with man's choices. What did she just say? I'll give you an illustration out of Exodus 3. It says, it gives us the greatest illustration because it says, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. So in some mysterious way, God moved in the hearts of the Egyptians. So they acted by their own choice to do exactly what God wanted them to do. I can't even tie my shoe. He's amazing. No part of the human experience can escape God's sovereign and, yes, mysterious control. So when it all comes down to our lives, the lives we live with our husbands, the lives we live with our children, our grandchildren, the problems that we have, the heartaches, life in a fallen world, how can the sovereignty of God help us with those day-to-day issues? Well, there's a link between the sovereignty of God and trusting God, and it's very practical and it's very powerful. Now, trusting God is often worked out in the arena of the unknown. We don't always know what God is doing. He doesn't send us memos. But he is in control. And sometimes it doesn't look like he is because things are very heartbreaking in this beautiful but broken world. Trusting God is different than obeying God. Obeying God is very clearly defined for us in Scripture because we have commands that we need to obey. And there's nothing, you know... It's just not up for discussion, right? In the act of trusting God, oftentimes we don't see what God is doing until we're looking in the rearview mirror and we've seen what he's done. Now, we can shine brightly in the darkness of any circumstance when we stop crying and moaning and complaining and whining. And I mentioned complaining. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And we trust him in the midst of some pretty scary and unexplainable things. 
Because if we don't trust him, we're not shining, okay? We don't shine for him because we're doubting God's sovereignty and we question his goodness. We are questioning his character. This is what Eve did, right? Now, this timeline is basically the history of the entire world. Did you see how little the earth was? It's a, it, when it says heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool, you get a little picture now of how little this earth is? Don't you love people who think that it's, you know, global warming and all that stuff, a climate with the change? Oh, yeah, there's going to be a climate change. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's in Second Peter. He's going to destroy the world. He's going to uncreate it in a blink of an eye. Yeah, there's going to be a climate change. All right, don't you? And there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so anyway, this is the entire history of the world. Whoever put this together was so brilliant because they put it in a circle and they put every scripture reference. So it starts with Adam and Eve. It sweeps around over here and we're going to go through this and it comes here. This is where Christ is in the center of everything. And we sweep around here. And it actually goes all the way to 2014 where Russia invades Ukraine. So it, it's very fascinating. And you'll see all these are different civilizations because here's the flood right here. And I know you can't see the details, which is precisely the point. <laughs> here's the flood. So here now all the civilizations begin. And you can see them. They're all color-coded. Love color. Love pictures. And so anyway, we're going to sweep through this timeline, but the sovereignty of God is played out on every page of the Bible. The sovereignty of God is on display in every aspect of human history, in every minute of human history. And I noticed a pattern. There's an overall sweeping picture. Throughout all of history, God loves to get everything down to one thing. He gets one old man walking up the mountain with his only son. He gets one baby floating down the Nile in a basket. He gets one baby hiding in a linen closet. He has one night the king couldn't sleep. I mean it over and over and over. One thing. But we'll explain why he does that. But we're going to start with Abraham. Now Abraham... Where did he go? He's right here. So you can kind of see where he is. Dot. He, we'll, he's a little dot. All right? So there's Abraham's little dot. If you think the earth is a little dot, we're like littler than a dot. But we'll start with Abraham. Abraham, story is in Genesis 17. God promises to Abraham, 99 years old, right? You know the story. And his young wife of 90. <laughs> I will multiply you exceedingly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Really? <laughs> okay. Genesis 17, 19, God promises to Isaac before Isaac was Isaac to know. He wasn't even there. and There was a promise. God said, Sarah will bear a son. You shall name him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants. I will bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him exceedingly and make him a great nation before Isaac ever came to be. Genesis 22, you know the story well. God tests Abraham. Take your son, take your only son, the son you love. And by the way, that's the first time that that word is mentioned in the Bible. 
just to underscore how much he loved his son. Your only son, the one you love, take him and basically kill him. Sacrifice him. Okay, that made no sense. That made no sense in the human intellect, did it? God gets his covenant down to this one old man walking up the mountain with his only son, with every intention of obeying God and sacrificing the boy, trusting him even though he didn't know the outcome. But the trust and the belief that he had was so magnificent, he realized that God could raise Isaac from the dead. This is magnificent faith. Abraham's great faith was shining brightly in the darkness of this circumstance. And notice God did not send the mother up that mountain. It's just an observation. <laughs> I don't think the mother could have done it. The mother wouldn't. <laughs> just an observation. <laughs> okay, now, that's just a little moment with that old man walking up the mountain. Now we're going to go to Joseph. Where did he go? Here's his little dot. You know that story of Joseph. This is incredible. Joseph was the man God would use to mightily rescue the Israelites from starvation. The food system that Joseph planned and managed literally sustained every nation. Genesis 41, 57. It says, every nation came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain for the famine was severe in the land. But before Joseph saved everyone, God put Joseph in a pit. Then he put him two years in a prison before Joseph was put in the palace. Notice it was all peas. <laughs> the pit, the prison, the palace. This is one of the most incredible stories of God's sovereign will. And Joseph shines in the darkness of his circumstance like nobody else. So the 17-year-old Joseph hated by his 11 brothers. They're jealous of him. The father favors Joseph, which makes, of course, it worse. And Joseph has these dreams, and he doesn't realize how prophetic they are that he's going to rule over his brothers. And then all, you know, and they're bowing down to him. And, you know, they're, they're incredible dreams. And, of course, he tells them, and the next thing he knows, he's thrown in a pit. There's one I want of the bowing down you know what I mean what, what happened to that dream so his brothers throw him in a pit they sell him into slavery sell him to Potiphar and he ends up in Egypt and it's it, it's it's really amazing when you look at the story God is weaving through Joseph's life and then you have the whole story of Potiphar in Genesis 39 you know that story where the Potiphar's wife's drama unfolds and Joseph is put in prison, right? So he went to the pit and now he's to the prison. And you know the cupbearer and the baker, they have these dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams. You know the story. And the cupbearer is returned to the position he had before, just like it was foretold. Joseph said that so. And the baker was executed. And the cupbearer says to Joseph, don't worry, Joseph. I got your back. I am going to tell Pharaoh everything about you. I am telling you, you're going to be out of here in no time. Two years later, talk about waiting and hashtag wait and shine. Wait and shine. That's what he had to do. He had to just keep shining in the darkness of his circumstance. He sat in that prison for two years. 
But he continued to just shine brightly in the darkness of the circumstance. And because of his sterling character and God's favor, Joseph was put in charge of all the prisoners. Joseph was responsible for everything in the jail. Why? Because Genesis 39.2 says the Lord was with Joseph and he was successful because of that. Genesis 39.23, because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, he prospered because God did it through him. All right? So Pharaoh then now all of a sudden has this dream and needs an interpreter and the cupbearer goes, oh yeah. I forgot about that guy. Okay. I know just the guy. So they go get him out of prison. He's now 30 years old. He had the dream when he was 17. That's a lot of time. Right? I don't do math, so I know it's a lot of time. Those of you who do math, can I, I just can't do it. But, you know, that was a lot of time. So then the famine hits. The circumstance draws Joseph's brother to Egypt for food. And the story unfolds and the brothers are bowing down to Joseph and Joseph right then is able to connect the dots. Now that doesn't happen all the time. But he is able to connect the dots right then because he recognizes his brothers and his brothers doesn't recognize him. So can you imagine the scene? Imagine for yourself, just a minute, everything that is flashing through Joseph's mind, like one of those movies that go, can you just imagine the dream of the brothers bowing down, then the pit, then the prison, then the Potiphar's wife leaving the coat. He's always losing his coat. That's an interesting thing too, but that's another story. But, you know, and maybe he flashed because, you know, we always think Joseph did such a great job. But you know what? He was in distress when he was sold into slavery. Genesis 42 says he was crying for help when he, uh, the brothers said they saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded for us. I always forget that part about him because he's such a cool guy. You know what I mean? He's always doing the right thing. He was screaming for help when they were selling him. He was real. He was a real human. So imagine that. And then all of a sudden, Joseph, in an instant, puts all of that together. He sees clearly that God has been actively involved. He's been moving and restraining, even allowing malicious acts of his brothers. Everything was in all God's good, sovereign will. And therefore, Joseph could say, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. And he did it in an instant. And then at the end of the story, Joseph is able to come to the conclusion and he speaks the magnum opus on the sovereignty of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph shines brightly in the darkness of his circumstance, but God shines all the more through him. And he is working millions and millions of things to bring about one thing every moment of every day throughout all of human history. Don't forget this. Because now every time something happens, all you'll have to do is this. And you'll know God's sovereignly working so many millions of things and I can't even tie my shoe. <laughs> so now we move through history and we're going to go, Satan is always wanting to destroy the uh, lineage that would bring about the Messiah. 
right? He's always scheming to find ways to annihilate the Israelites. So the time of Moses is no different. So now we're going to go to Moses, which is this little dot. So we've been uh, to Abraham, we've been to Joseph, and now we're here at Moses' little dot. Do you see him? No, exactly. Okay, see how little we are? And yet he cares for us. Amazing. So Pharaoh orders the death of all the male babies, and what happens to Moses? Well, you know the story so well, but all of redemptive history, all of redemptive history is floating down the Nile in a basket. It's a baby in a basket floating down the river. How can God do this? The baby can't do anything. And Sister Miriam's running along the banks. Oh, I'm following the baby, you know, to see what happens. I mean, it's an incredible picture of God's power. I'm doing this impossible thing so that you can know you can trust me. So Pharaoh's daughter comes and finds the baby. Miriam's kind of hiding in the back. And she goes, oh, oh, I need a nurse. I need a nurse for the baby. And Miriam's like, oh, I'll go get, I'll go get my mother. <laughs> so the mother not only gets to nurse her son, she gets paid for it. <laughs> it's in the Bible, Exodus 2.9. She gets paid. <laughs> Only God could pull that off. <laughs> Amazing. Now here's a story you may not be as familiar with, but it's another baby. See, because there's a theme going on here. And this is Joash. Now Joash is down here. Here he is. So we've got to, we're going to scoop way down here. All right, so now we're going to talk about Joash for just a minute. And this is like a very complicated story, and there's a lot of big names of people, you know, that I can't pronounce. So I'm going to make it as simple as possible because I have to make things as simple as possible for me. Okay, but it was prophesied that the Messiah would come through David's line, right? Luke 1.32, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end, right? Well, at that little dot that I just pointed out, Joash, God chose in his good sovereign will to get all of David's line down to one baby hiding in a linen closet, for six years without getting bogged down in too many details <laughs> even though every detail is amazing it's true, it would take an hour but this was the time of the divided kingdom and all the kings just came and went and one was worse than the other, right? <laughs> but this particular story centers around Ahab and Jezebel's daughter Atalia, I think is her name um Ata no, Italia. It's so hard to pronounce these things. We'll, we'll call her Sue. No. <laughs> but anyway, it said, when she saw that her son was dead, the king, the wicked king, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs of the house of Jacob. This is in Second Chronicles 22. Write that down. You can go and study this for yourself. But verse 11 said, the king's daughter, so the murdered king's daughter, rescued Joash, so that was the infant son of the murdered king, the only last reigning, the only last descendant. Everybody else was killed, right? Except the baby. Rescued him from the sons who were being killed and put him in, in the 
with the one who nursed him in the room of the beds. That's basically a linen closet. And he was there for six years until Ahab and Jezebel's daughter were overthrown. You know those names. Joash was then crowned king. Why? Because 2 Chronicles 23.3 says, He must reign just as the Lord promised concerning David's sons. So God shines brightly in the darkness of this murderous circumstance with this violent woman killing her own descendants. But he preserved the line of David in this most unusual way. Isn't that incredible? Go study that story because it's pretty cool, the whole thing. But now we're going to sweep through history to Esther and Mordecai. And you know them very well. Here they are down here. They're little dots down here. So we've swept. See how fast we're going? Do you have whiplash? Here we are, Esther and Mordecai. So the story, this is the story of how the Jews, the chosen people of God, were almost annihilated by one guy, Haman. Everybody thinks it was Hitler. (laughs) Long before Hitler came, it was Haman. Haman has the favor of the king, and he can basically do whatever he wants. His sights were set on massacring all the Jews, and because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him, Haman wanted to hang him on the gallows. You remember the story. And the gallows are built, and Haman plans to get the king's approval the next morning, right? And then all of a sudden, that night, the king couldn't sleep. The king's sleep fled from him. This is in the book of Esther, chapter 6. Because of that night, and I always wondered, what is the deal with all those banquets that Esther threw? You know, I could say, how how many banquets is this woman going to throw? She throws the banquet, she goes there, and she's going to, you know, expose Haman, but she doesn't. And that's a whole other talk, too, because you think Esther, like, was fasting and praying, and she didn't come up with that idea. She didn't go in thinking she was going to throw another banquet. She thought of it then. But that's a whole other story. Incredible. So she starts, she's going to throw another banquet. She said, uh, what do you want? Anything you want. Half the kingdom. It's yours. Go ahead. Uh, I want to throw another banquet that I'm going to prepare. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. we throw another banquet. Okay, great. When is that? Tomorrow. But that night, the king couldn't sleep. And that's the night God did everything. Incredible. Because that's the night the book of the Chronicles was ordered to read to him what a snooze so he would go to sleep. But that's when he found out that Mordecai saved his life. And Mordecai ends up being honored. Haman hung on the gallows and the Jews saved, right? You all know that part of the story. But what I didn't know was that one night the king couldn't sleep. This was a mind blower. Here they are. That one night was put in, started to put in place way back here a thousand years when Jacob sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Now listen to this. You think you can solve your problems? Listen to what God did. Working out millions and millions and millions of things to bring about one thing every second of every day throughout all of human history. But one night the king couldn't sleep. So follow me on this. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons back here, right? And you know, Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God blessed the line of Jacob, but Esau was the line Jacob, that God rejected. The Edomites descended from Esau. They were enemies of Israel. 
Esau's grandson was Amalek, all right? Now, the Amalekites were the enemies who fought against the Jews when they exited Egypt. That was 300 years before. See how oh, this is incredible. I hope you're following me on this. I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. Now, you remember that Saul was commanded to annihilate the Amalekites. Remember that? 1 Samuel 15, it says, Thus says the Lord, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put him to death, both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Could God have been any clearer? So, you remember the scene. The slaughter had happened. Samuel comes to get the report from Saul. Saul says, well, I did everything I was told to do. Everything, everything. I did everything. And then eventually, Agag, the king, was eventually hacked to pieces by Samuel. But before that happened, Agag got loose. And he had descendants. And who was the descendant of King Agag? Haman! Haman! Because of the disobedience of one king hundreds of years before this incident. I think God is amazing. God is amazing. Haman was a, a, a descendant of a disobedient moment. So important to be obedient. Haman was an Agite descendant of the Amalekites. God worked through King Saul's disobedience 550 years before Haman ever existed. God worked through Isaac and Rebekah a thousand years before Haman ever existed. God shines brightly in the darkness of the circumstance, working millions and millions of things to bring about one thing every single minute throughout all of history. And then, now we can go on to another little dot, to around the birth of Christ. And we're going to meet the guy, Simeon. We read about him in Luke 2, 26. It was revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Messiah. So this old man, now we don't know much about this guy. The word said he was righteous and devout. Wouldn't that be nice to have that be said about us? I mean, that's, not, that's all you need to really know about anybody. <laughs> he was righteous and devout. Simon was a nobody, just like you and me. He was nobody. He was in the temple. Oh, he just happened to be in the temple the exact same day that Joseph and Mary and the baby were at the temple. Do you know there are 38,000 people in the temple on any given day? 38,000 people, that's more than Grand Central Station in New York. It was packed with people. Those are just the people there. And not just the animals and, and the people who worked in the temple. I mean, it's, it's just packed. So much is going on and they just happen to run into each other. Come on! Verse 27 says in Luke 2, guided by the Holy Spirit, he entered the temple complex. God led him right there to the little family. 
God's sovereignly orchestrating every moment. He holds every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year in his hands. Nothing slips through his hands. And this nobody, Simeon, gets to lay his eyes on the Savior and then die in peace. What a gift. God did such a special thing for a nobody. God's promise, walking up the mountain with one man and his only son, all of redemptive history, floating down the Nile, a baby in a basket, all of David's line hiding in a linen closet for six years. The annihilation of God's chosen people comes down to one night that a king couldn't sleep. And one nobody seeing the promise of the Messiah fulfilled. And then we have our Jesus. Here he is in the center of our chart. All of salvation the only hope for mankind of getting back to God, all of it resting in one helpless baby, you get the theme, lying in a manger. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, as I said, Satan has attempted to destroy the messianic line throughout all of history. And here it is, the night the Savior is born. Do you think Satan is not going to try to stop it? Revelation 12 gives us a glimpse into the invisible world that night. Because it might have been silent in the stable when we all sing about the silent night and maybe a cow is mooing. But there was no silence in the invisible world that night. Revelation 12 tells us the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she might devour the child the moment it was born. It's going to change your manger scene that you're going to put up in about a month. He was waiting for that child to be born so that he could destroy it. The invisible battle raging at the time of our Lord's birth, all of Satan and his evil forces are at work, and that baby can't do anything. The baby is helpless. Philippians 2 tells us he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He came all the way down to a helpless baby. Of course Satan failed to stop this birth. So he then worked through Herod and all the male babies trying to kill the Messiah. But of course he couldn't. Amazing night. But isn't it interesting? Another baby. Helpless baby lying in a manger. And then of course we sweep around now and this is the, this little, you know that big Roman Empire? Here it is. Not very big. Can you see it in the back? Exactly. <laughs> Here it is, the Roman Empire. That falls. We go into the Dark Ages. And then we come up. And here's the Great Reformation. Here it is. Remember that video? <laughs> and so many incredible things happened in the Reformation. God preserving his word through this one man. It all got down to one man, William Tyndale. We'll talk about him a little bit later this morning. One man. Nobody really even knows who he is. Everybody talks about the reformers and, you know, they talk about the theologians. This guy translated the Bible into English so that we can understand it. He was one guy on the run for his life. Ten years. 
He knew nine languages. He had a dictionary and a Greek New Testament, and he put the whole thing into the English language so that instead of hearing, you know, ha, oh, patris deo, hocus pocus, you hear God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you could understand that you could get back to God through Christ because of what this one man did. And even Shakespeare, one Shakespeare guy, a poet, one poet. He actually had a great influence on the language of the King James. That's a whole, this is, I could talk for months about the Reformation, which we will not do, but it's fascinating. But all that to say, you get the, the gist, right? God does all these incredible things. Well, we'll go to some application now, because what does all this mean to me? Now that we've swept through history, what impacts us as we hear how God is caring for every minute of every life? Well, don't be afraid. I'm telling a room of women. Don't be afraid. We're afraid of everything. Why do you think we try to control everything? Because we're afraid. And we're so afraid to admit it. Remember I told you to go home and tell God something you never told him? I want to tell him you're afraid. I know it sounds simplistic, but it says, be anxious for nothing. I thought it said, be anxious for everything. <laughs> I must have had a wrong translation. <laughs> Even when I came here, I hadn't traveled in the longest time. I was anxious. I couldn't sleep the night I, before I came. I had to repent most of the night because I was anxious about traveling, you know. It was weird. But, you know, Jesus said, don't, don't fear. Luke 12 talks about the sparrows, Remember? Not one of them is forgotten before God. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than the sparrows. We know that God is powerful and sovereign and that he cares for us, so we should not be afraid of anything. But here's the thing. Our fear doesn't come from trusting that God won't work out the situation or take care of the situation. Now listen to me, ladies. Our fear comes from how God will take care of the situation. I heard a couple laughs, knowing laughs, yes. We fear it will not go the way we want it to go. That's what we really fear. We don't trust how he's going to work it out in our favor. We know that he's going to work out the situation out, but we must trust for the outcome he desires. We try to figure out things all the time, don't we? Sometimes we can see him working, and oftentimes we don't see much of anything. Like Job's friends, you know, they came up with these endless explanations about what God was doing. They didn't know anything. Look, remember the video? Do you think you know anything? We really don't know anything about anything. It's really nice to admit that. It's kind of liberating. <laughs> don't come to me with a problem. I don't know. <laughs> Read the Bible. Do what it says. It's not. <laughs> How can we possibly know what God knows? Job and his friends had no idea what went on in heaven at the conversation between God and Satan. They had no idea. Nobody could read Job 1 <laughs> and find that out. But they thought they had all the answers and their insistent ignorance made matters worse. But it didn't stop them from coming up with endless speculations about what God was doing and all the suffering. Ladies, we do the same thing. Did you hear me? We do the same thing. 
We have endless ideas about how to solve all of our problems to end all of the suffering. Have you ever met a woman without an idea? <laughs> Eve had that great idea. Wasn't that great? Sarah, she had a great idea. I think they're still fighting about that in the Middle East. Great idea of Sarah's. And a woman can come up with an idea. I know because I are one. Uh, I can come up with an idea with a 25 plant, point plan with lighting and scenery in about 10 seconds. No problem. No wonder when God finally spoke to Job after 37 chapters, he says, who is this that darkens the counsel with words without knowledge? And why I wanted to start with prayer was to emphasize that if we prayed before we spoke, it would change the world you live in. When you find yourself floating around in an unknown and troubling situation, you want to get the victory by trusting in his good sovereign will before the answer comes. Before you know what's going to happen, trust him. Shine brightly. Be in the prison with Joseph. Shining before that cupbearer finally told him. Right? Before the outcome is revealed, when you're in the pit or the prison with Joseph, can you rest quietly trusting that God is in control of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year, and trust him for how he will work it out. When we just take a brief look at the history as we did today, look at the care that God took in working all these millions and millions of things to bring about everything, every minute. Look how he loves to get everything down to one thing and he brings his people through these impossible situations for his glory and our good. Don't be afraid. And the next thing to know is, in case you forgot, he loves you. God loves you. Have you forgotten that? Have your troubles become so big that you forgot that he loves you? And he loves you with a supernatural love. He meets our needs. He hears our prayers. He solves our problems. He sees each tear that falls and puts them in the bottle. He knows what makes us afraid. And we are cared for in a supernatural level. You can safely place your life in God's loving, capable hands. Don't be afraid. God loves you and stay alert. First Peter 5, be on the alert. Satan is angrily thrashing about the earth looking to destroy everything that is precious to God. Be on the alert. While we are on the earth, we are in enemy territory and do not forget that. Back in the day, you know, when Jim Elliott was going on to the mission field and the cannibals, and we'll hear more about the cannibals later, you know, you know, they would go places and they would get eaten. You know, I mean, it was dangerous to go places. But, you know, here, you remember the story of that little um, church in the South, South Carolina, when the guy came in and basically killed everybody but one person? He said, I almost didn't do it because everyone was so nice to me. And then that incredible scene that incredible scene when they captured the guy, all the family members forgave him. I mean, the news people who were reporting it couldn't believe it. They said they'd never seen anything like it. One family member after another kept forgiving this guy. They shone brightly in the darkness of their circumstance and forgave that boy. 
So don't be afraid. God loves you. Stay on the alert. Honor God by trusting him for how he will work it out. And like last night as we were talking about prayer, build a worshipful prayer life. Build a worshipful prayer life. Now look, we are most likely not going to be called upon to save a nation from starvation. (laughs) We're not going to be called on to do anything earth-shaking in history. But what God did to Joseph and Moses and that nobody Simeon, God will do for you. We don't know what's around the corner of our lives, but he is there waiting for us. Will you trust him? Will you honor him? And I just want to end with a story to kind of bring God's sovereignty down to a little tiny thing. But when I turned 60, I went home uh, for the first time to my home. See, I came from a broken home at nine years old. My parents divorced and we never went back. My mother said, we just have to keep pressing on. We just have to keep moving forward. Don't look back. Don't look back. And that was actually good advice. But at 60, after she died, I went back. And it was the most beautiful trip because it was Chicago, so it had a beautiful fall. I went back in the fall. That may be the last time I saw a fall. And I went back to my kindergarten room. Nobody had even painted, I don't think. I mean, everything was the same. It was like a time warp. I got into the house where I grew up. I walked around the house. I said, everything is the same. This is incredible, except everything was down here, you know, and now it's up here. I didn't see this up here. You know, and it was such a beautiful thing. And I was with my friend who I'd known since my whole life. I've known her. And we were swinging on the swing sets. It was incredible. And then I said to my husband, and I took him all over the place. And it was just a glorious trip. And I said, I want to find my um, grandmother's apartment. You know, I know it's on Maple Street. And so we found, you know, finally found the apartment. She, she was the closest thing in the world to me. My friend Selena knows, knew her. And she lived till she was 98. Um, she wasn't a believer, but she was, oh, she was my best friend. I was a very um, a difficult child to raise. She was the only one that liked me. <laughs> but anyway, so we found the apartment. This is great. I said, oh, Donnie, look, it's still here. This is incredible. Let's go into the lobby. Now, my grandmother's name was Elsie May Logan. The last time I was in that lobby had been was 50 years ago. So I walk in and I go and look and here's her mailbox. And on the mailbox is written the name Logan. The same mailbox. I hadn't been there in 50 years and now a family named Logan was there. We were so stunned. We just, we couldn't, my husband who's never flappable, he couldn't even contain himself. We ran out like somebody was chasing us. (laughs) And nobody was, we just couldn't gather ourselves together. And I said, oh my, I could feel the Lord. He was right there. He was so close. He was right there. And I said, how'd you like the mailbox? He said, that was really nice touch. That was a nice touch, nice touch. I said, and it was just so incredible. And what did it mean? Nothing. Except to me. It meant everything to me. Because I will probably never see my grandmother again. And he gave me that moment where God was so close to me. It was so beautiful. And all of God's sovereignty was down to a mailbox with a name on it. Please trust him. Please don't forget he loves you. And rest in him. Till the last breath you take. Dear God, 
Thank you for your love. Thank you for caring for us. Oh, please help us to trust you. In Christ's high holy name, amen.